Um, yesterday, for some of you who were there for our uh, Servant Leadership Conference, and uh, want to encourage all of you to just join in and um, serve in certain ways. And if you're interested, talk to uh, one of our pastors and want to get you plugged in. And uh, uh, But it's so good to be here. You know, one of the things I, uh, you know, when you buy something new, and there's kind of two types of people, and m most of us fall in the first category, right? When you buy something new, um, the, the average person like me, we don't read the manual usually, right? So when you got a car, I remember when I got my Accord, it comes with a book, it looks like a Bible, and then it has another one, and it's like, here, the guy gives it to me at the end, here's your thing, here's how to uh, drive this car. I'm like, I don't need this. I'm a man, like, I don't need this, right? And so I, I don't read it, we just put it in the glove, and, and it's just too much. I don't need all that information, right? I don't need that. When you buy a computer or a laptop, or, it comes with all this uh, information and we don't really read it now some of you do that's fantastic and you actually know how to use all the, the functions the right way um, and then we have uh, and then we don't read it because it's too complicated or on the other side sometimes it's just too simple there's not enough instructions on it and it's frustrating right like anytime you buy something at where where is it like just not enough instructions what store is that Ikea right dreaded Ikea um, it's uh, and it's, you know, they have someone who's not an artist come out with these renderings, and this screw is supposed to go here, but this screw, and they all look alike, but the drawings look like, a, you know, an a eight-year-old did it, so you can't tell. And um, I've, I've put together quite a bit of IKEA furniture, and I admit here today publicly, most of it, there's always an error on one side or the other, but it's too late. It's already put together, and there's no way... I'm taking that little wrench to unscrew the hundred screws to do it over. I just deal with it. And um, I hope my wife doesn't see, but she's in here now. She's going to look, but um, it's okay. All right. Uh, she loves me anyway, so it's okay. But we do that. Those are all instruction manuals. You know, uh, um, some are too simple, some are too complicated. And there's, in Romans 12 is a, an instruction manual of sorts uh, of um, how to live as a Christian. Uh, you know, when we... A couple weeks ago, went through chapter 12, verse 1, and it talked about offering your bodies as living sacrifices. Um, it's not just, it, sometimes we read that, and if you've been in the church, you've heard that, and uh, you've maybe even memorized that, and it's such a kind of a big, spiritual, vague sentence. You know, well, how do I do that? How does that work? And from verse 9 and on, we have these, till the end of the chapter, these uh, 18 uh, exhortations that tells us how we ought to do this how we ought to offer our bodies, what that looks like, that it's not just some spiritual, personal experience you have somewhere at some time, but it says this is how you do it. And you read, we're going to read those uh, instructions today. There's 18, we're going to go over four of them. And we're going to see what real love looks like. We're going to see what we ought to hate, what we ought to hold on to. And lastly, we're going to see that we're in a committed relationship in the church and we see those four parts today and uh, we're going to run through it and before i jump into number one you know a little bit of background helps us to understand um, these uh, commands that are mentioned here in rome uh, when the churches were forming and people were coming to christ and the conversions were happening um, the first ones to accept christ were the jews and it's interesting because the jews who lived in rome were marginalized on the outskirts they kept their own heritage and often those who lived uh, scholars tell us that they were usually poor 
And so you could imagine that they might have been looked down upon and they might have been frowned upon. And they were very proud of their heritage. And so they would look at what we call the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and they would look down on them maybe and say they're different. And they have all these philosophies and mythologies. And so they would look down on them and so on and so forth. Well, when Christianity hits the scene, these clusters of Christian converts start meeting in homes. This is the first church. They start meeting in homes. And they're gathering together, they're reading these letters and reading and they're praying and they're serving one another and the church is forming in this way. Can you imagine now? It's not only the Jewish converts, but now it's the Gentile converts. And they're coming to Christ and now they're getting together in these houses. Can you imagine the differences they have? And maybe even the bitterness that they had to deal with. Um, prejudices against the other. You know, you, you know I'm not going to let my kid marry that person, that person's a Gentile, and that person, they, they eat different things, and they believe different things. And they would look at the Jews, and those were the poor people, the, the hyper-religious people of the day, and they lack trust. And now they're getting together, and you can imagine, this is not an easy place. This is not a place where people that are like-minded get together. Their backgrounds are completely different, but what brought them together was Christ. And now they're becoming one. They're trying to figure out church life. Can you imagine doing a community group with someone that different and how difficult that would be? Well, we get to, now he tells us. Now we understand the background. Now he tells us, first of all, let love be genuine. Right? Look at verse 9 that we read. Let love be genuine. Let it be real. Uh, at a quick glance of this translation, you would say, well, isn't that obvious? Love is genuine, isn't it? I mean, it, without it being genuine, isn't it not love? And what, what's, what is this? How do you define this? To dig a little deeper, um, the word that is used here about love is that it would be without hypocrisy. And so the ESV helps us to translate that in a positive way. Let it be genuine. But it, let love be without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy, literally, is what it says. There's no action verb in there. Love... Uh, without hypocrisy. Uh, and the word without hypocrisy, uh, anapokritos is the word. It, it, without, and the word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, uh, that word there, the second part, is a word that is used to describe an actor. So someone who would put on a mask, literally, and entertain the masses. An actor, and today we watch TV or movies and we see actors and actresses, and they put on a certain face and they're able to cry on cue and they tie you in and you say, boy, they're so good. You know, you believe their character. They play that character so well. He says, let your love not be an act. Don't fool people by what you have on the outside, but it's what you do on the inside. Let love be genuine in this way. Hypocrisy. Jesus calls people hypocrites often. Jesus called especially the religious people the leaders of the day who were proud of who they thought they were by their actions. Hypocrites often. In Matthew chapter 7, we know so well when Jesus tells them, you hypocrite, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your neighbors. Before you pinpoint their sin, look at the sin that you have. He said, you're a hypocrite. The hypocrite is the person that is more concerned about their image, more concerned about being better than someone else, and I want to portray something to someone that I'm not. 
there was a study done. It was a kind of a fascinating study about uh, road rage. And I'm sure you might have in, in our day and age, it seems like it's happening more and more, uh, been at the, you know, at the receiving end of road rage, because I know none of you actually had road rage. Um, no, but we, even I've had road rage where someone would take my parking spot and, you know, uh, you know, and uh, it's, it's like that, right? And, and they did a study. And they say, well, it's a common factor of someone that's an offender in road rage, that's willing to just want to fight over, you know, my, this is my space. You, you drove into my lane. You think about that, right? Um, what is that? And it's kind of interesting because it wasn't a male or female thing. The common factor wasn't the, the uh, uh, predictor wasn't because they're male or female. No, it wasn't because they're younger or older. It wasn't like the young guys had this and the old guys wanted, were grumpy and they want. It wasn't that. It wasn't the, the price of the car. It wasn't that the guys that had the $80,000 car versus the guy that has the $8,000 car would be more angry. There was one thing. And uh, it, was, it was surprising. It was bumper stickers. They said the person who has bumper stickers, and the more bumper stickers they have, the more likelihood that they would now be the offender in a road rage incident. Now, some of you are going to go peel your bumper stickers off. It's okay. We're not going to judge your bumper stickers. And it doesn't matter what kind of bumper stickers are on there. So it could be, hey, you know, vote for so-and-so. Or it could be, hey, um, you know, God is my co-pilot. Doesn't really matter, right? And they said, the more you had. Or it could be, hey, my kid was the smartest kid in preschool for this month only. You know, I hope you know. He's 21 now, but I still carry it on here. Um, student of the month or whatever. Doesn't matter, but the more you have, the more that person's likely. It's kind of interesting. So the moral of the story, next time you cut someone off, check their bumpers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's not that. But what we see here, and the reason they, say, they think that happens is that person's expressive. They express even their anger in this way. Right? And I share this with you because... The bumper sticker says, this is what I believe. This is what's important to me. And it could even be that I love Jesus, or I love this, or you know, we want peace, or whatever it is. And maybe the actions are different. When love is genuine, it's, it's more than what you believe. Because you all have beliefs. And maybe at work, people know you're a Christian. And maybe amongst your friends, they know, yeah, Sunday he goes to church, he does Sunday school, he's a, he's a real good guy, or they, that, you know, that family, they're devoted to their church, they serve in the church, they know. But it's more than the label that we put on ourselves to let others know, this is what I think. It says, when love is genuine, because love itself is a verb, it's something you do. So what you believe is important, uh, the doctrines are important, but how you act upon it now, Paul says is what constitutes a non-hypocrite. You have to act. You have to love. Love is a verb. And so don't just say, oh, well, well, as a Christian man, I know I ought to love my wife and children. Have you loved them, actually? Have you done something for them? Or you know someone, you know, you, as a Christian, I know I should love my neighbor. Do you actually know your neighbor by name? Do you talk to them? Do you listen to them? Do you help them? Or do you ignore them? Or maybe as a Christian, you say, boy, you know, when I see this on the news, it breaks my heart. Gosh, they should do something about it. But have you done something about it? Or maybe your heart breaks for the less fortunate out there, and you drive by at the freeway exits, and someone's holding, whatever it is, you say, oh, that's so bad, and I feel so guilty. Don't feel guilty. Go do something about it. 
Go pass out some sandwiches. Go to the soup kitchen. Go to one of the events at church. Go do something. Love isn't a verb. It's something we do. So if love is going to be genuine, let love be genuine. You can imagine a church filled with people who doesn't just talk the talk, but actually walks the walk. And I would guess that the average person who is done with church, for whatever reason, their number one reason for, I'm done with church, I'm done with that, is some kind of a hypocrite issue. Uh, I've been there at my mom's church and the leaders acted foolish. There's no way I can't, I'm, not, I'm done with that. Or, you know, I was in this small group and, you know, I was so let down by them. It's a hypocrite issue. Well, don't worry so much about them. Let's worry about ourselves. Let's be loving in this way. Let's be a loving church. Can we imagine to be a church where we could come and everyone here, whether we're younger or in the faith or we've been in the faith and we love each other in this way. Let it be real. So don't worry about the speck in someone else's eye. Let us be the answer to that. That love would be genuine. You can imagine on this the uh, background of this. Remember last week we talked about the list of all the gifts that is mentioned. So Paul's like, let me remind you what you have. Gift of service, you ought to be serving. Gift of teaching, you ought to be teaching. Gift of leadership, you ought to be leading in this way. Uh, if you like to do acts of service, you ought to do it cheerfully. If you... If it's in giving, you ought to do it generously. He gives all this list. And you have now a bunch of people that say, I know the list. I know my strengths. I found, man, those top three for me. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm bad at. Wonderful. But is it just the bumper sticker that says, hey, I know and I'm this, but are we going to do it? And he's saying, come on, let love be genuine without hypocrisy. Don't just say you know it. Don't just say you believe it, but now you have to do it. The second thing he says is, abhor what is evil. And contrary to that, hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. You could imagine in a culture, um, especially in cultures like Corinth and Ephesus, and where, where the letters were written, where the culture uh, was so, um, uh, just so opposite of the biblical world mind, uh, worldview that uh, it, it would just naturally, the people would start to compromise. And he says, you cannot, you cannot just ignore it. You cannot just say, ah, oh, whatever. You have to hate what is evil. And sometimes when we think of love, we think love is, well, isn't it just liking everything and everyone? No, there are things you have to hate. There are things you have to love. You know, Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on this says this, true virtue is not passive about evil, but has an intense revulsion of it. Evil is not tolerated, but despised as that which is injurious and wicked. Where there is love, evil is abhorred, not merely lamented, much less covered up, but hated. And that word abhor is used uh, in this way where many commentators said it, it means to hate exceedingly. And I'm so against it. In our culture today, it's easy for us just to say, well, uh, you know, we, we kind of slide with the culture. We go with it. I was listening to a message by Pastor Eric Mason, and he, he gives a talk, and he, he talks about it. He, calls, he says about our culture, he calls it a pornographic culture. Um, and what he's saying, is it's not just simply the pornography that he's talking about, but when he's talking about pornographic culture, he's talking about just how our standards of our lack of sensitivity, you know, if we were sensitive to these things, if we were we would blush and would be against those things, and we would say those are wrong or this and that. 
was at a 9 and 10, maybe 10 years ago. It says, now in the church, we're down to like a 4. Because the culture around us is saying, who cares? And so we have to know what is evil, and we have to be against what God is against in, in so many ways. And also, we have to hold fast to what is good. And a lot of times, a lot of people enjoy and like things that are evil, and they don't care about what is good. But he says, make sure you hold on to what is good. The goodness of fellowship, genuine friendship, the goodness of forgiveness, the goodness of grace, the gospel, the goodness of generosity and charity and prayer. All these things that are good, we got to hold on to it. And the word that he uses here, the hold fast, literally means to cling to. It's referenced in Matthew 6 and um, 1 Corinthians 6 as well. It's the idea uh, of a man and a woman coming together in union, to be glued together literally, to be holding fast, to hold on to what is good. Remember the words of Paul in Philippians 4.8, where he says this, finally, brothers, and I want you to listen to this list. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Hold fast to what is good. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this to mean, does this mean I have to become a lot more serious? Does this mean I can't have fun? No, laughter is a gift from God. We don't want to take ourselves too seriously. But we want to know that outside of my feelings and what I think, there's a right and there's a wrong. And it's not dictated by my feelings. It, it, here it says it's outside of us. And we got to fight against what's evil. We got to fight for what is good. And that has to define who we are. Fourthly, in this world, he says to love one another with brotherly affection. This is this covenant language. Family language, right? Um, Love one another with brotherly affection. I'm going to just uh, break this up in two parts. As I was reading some of the commentators on this, <clears throat> they note that the first part, this phrase, love one another, it, it's a word, uh, philostorgos. It, it's, it's a word for love, but it means a love of that of a parent to a child. In the Greek language, it was described as a parent's love for a child. Very different, isn't it? Parents' love for a child. They're always there. Uh, they want what's best. Parents aren't always the most fun, you know, but you know they're going to take care of you. And there's so on and so forth. And just be devoted in this way. Um, like a mom that cares for a newborn, a dad that cares for a son or a daughter. There's that affection. So he talks about that here. The love in this way, Philostorgas. And then he says, with brotherly affection, at the second part of that verse, uh, Philadelphia. We know the city of brotherly love. It gets the name from this word. Philadelphia. A brotherly love. A friend love. A uh, best friend type of love. You know, you experience life together. You have fun together. You have each other's backs. You go to that person when you need them. And they help you. And if you were to dig a foxhole, they would jump in with you. That kind of love. And in this short phrase, Paul here sums up the family relationship we have in the local church. That once you come into the church and you are a member of a church, you are part of this family. I think the two things you cannot choose, right? It's your family 
and it's the church people, right? You cannot choose either one. You can't choose how many siblings you're going to have. You, you, you have no choice over that. My, my kids sometimes say to me, oh, you know, oh, man, I wish I had an older brother. Like Chris will say that sometimes. Oh, I wish I had an older brother. And I said, no, you don't. Older brother's no good. Like, he'll take your room and take your food. Like, you don't want an older brother. No, he'll be nice older brother. There's no such thing as nice older brother. Fool, foolish child. Be careful what you ask for, right? Or, you know, even sometimes Ashley asks, oh, I wish you had a baby sister. No, you don't want a baby sister. I won't pay no attention to you. You don't want a baby sister. Oh, no, I'll, I'll take it. You're not going to take it. That baby's not going to listen to you. You didn't listen to us, you know. And we don't get to choose that, right? There was a, a, a scene, I remember, in the Twilight Zone. You say, when, when was that on? It was on the Twilight Zone. It was a long time ago. Black and white. Nice to watch the reruns. And I remember there was one where the kids get to go, a kid gets to go, and he didn't like his parents, and he gets to go into this kind of like a mall, and parents, or sets of parents in these windows, and he gets to pick his own parents. And he goes, and they're all like trying to be nice and extra, and like, we'll do this for you, and look, and, and he gets to pick them, and I don't remember the rest, you know, it was on late at night. And, but anyways, I remember that scene, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, I wonder if I got to pick my parents. It'd be nice to have some like filthy, rich, nice parents that said yes all the time, said no all the time. Um, but we don't get to pick them. You don't pick your siblings. You don't pick your family. And then within the church context, you don't pick who God brings into the church. And some people come to check it out. Ah, I don't know. And they're like that kid on the twilight zone. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to check it out. No, they're not good enough for me. Or no, they're just, they're just too ugly for me. I'm going to go to that church. Or, you know, uh, we don't pick them. God picks them. But we're in a family. And Leon Morris in his commentary says that this idea of brother and sister is a unique Christian idea. It's the beauty of the Christian community. That we are not just mere friends, but we are now brothers and sisters. We're tied together by the blood of Christ. And this is the argument he has for now the Roman, the Gentile believer, and the Jewish believer who are at odds, who would avoid each other. Now they're together saying, you are closer to each other because of your heavenly father. And how important that is. There was an experiment that was done uh, to see the power of having someone there with you, having a friend, just having support. And they would have people go and stand in buckets of ice water. And the first group, they would have them stand in a bucket of ice water, and they would have their friend along with them. And their friend would cheer them on. Like, hang in there, man. I'm glad it's not me and you. You know, whatever a friend would say, it's not that cold. Imagine, you know, it's 100 degrees. Come on, they would cheer them on. And they would have to stay till they couldn't take the pain any longer, and they would say, okay, I'm done. They would let them out. The second group of people, they would put in the same type of ice water, and they would have them standing there, but they were alone. They had no friend, and they would say, okay, you stay in here as long as you could uh, hang. And what the study did is it came out that the person who had someone next to them lasted two times the amount that a person who dealt with it by themselves. Isn't it true that sometimes life is painful? Isn't it true that sometimes we are just need us some help? And if I have someone next to me, and I have someone that is there for me, I could stand in this ice water a little longer. I can go and do this because they're with me. It hurts less, and I can get by. 
when we get together in the church, this is not a spectacle to come and watch or to sing my favorite song or to hear something that might inspire me for the more than that. And those are all good things, but more than that, the church is not a show. The church is a place I come and I come here to now say, hey, I need your help and I'm here to help you. I'm your brother, you're my sister. The language Paul uses, uh, we see even in 1 Timothy, when he tells Pastor Timothy how to deal with people in church. Think, listen to this as the, the, the family words that are used here. 1 Timothy 5.1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So he's saying to this young pastor, don't treat the old guy just like the old guy, like, oh, you know. No. He's saying treat him like a father. Treat the older women like your mother. Treat the young men like brothers, the younger, the women like sisters in purity. He says you treat them like a family. And that's what we need. And how does this happen? It happens here. It happens when we decide. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, uh, would write and speak about leadership and servant leadership and things often. And one of the things he said is, how do you identify someone who needs encouragement? And his answer is, that person is breathing. And how we need to go and look and say, man, I'm here for you. You know, how can I pray for you? And put your arm around someone and say, hey, man, how you doing? How's, how's you know, raising that baby? Or how's work? How's the new job? Or how, how's the job search going? And someone to come alongside. That's more than just an acquaintance, but a brother or sister means so much more. We have this bond because of what Christ did on the cross for us. We come here to celebrate him. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, it wasn't just a ticket to heaven. It was so much more than that. We are adopted into his family. He, the heavenly father becomes our father. And this is what J.I. Packer says, and I have a quote that I want to share with you. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Even higher than justification, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and view God as father. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the father is greater. And Tim Keller in one sentence sums it up so well with this picture. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child we have that kind of access when jesus christ died on the cross for us we became adopted into this family and the heavenly father that took us in knew that we were unworthy but he took us in anyways and now we are with our brothers and sisters some are very different some are very different, and we say, I, I don't know if we could fit, but yet the bond that we have is stronger than anything else. It's what we have in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters here, I want to encourage you to come into this place, to worship God, to be inspired, but to come and say, I'm going to get in a circle with a group of people. We're going to hold hands. We're going to pray. We're going to get through this, and I'm going to go and help someone. I'm going to be a part of someone's life. And if they need me, I'm going to walk across the street. I'm going to go see them. If my neighbor needs me, I'm going to go and talk to them. I'm going to pray with them. And if someone needs me to jump in that foxhole with them and watch their back, I'm going to do this. And when I need someone, I'm going to ask for this. 
May we have that kind of community, a church that loves each other deeply, that the world would look at and say, boy, they are like a family. They cheer for each other. They cry for each other. They're like a family because of what Christ has done for us. So with that thought, let our love be genuine, especially here in this place. Let's pray together. God, you give us a great command because you are a great God. And what you have offered to us is so great that we want not to follow you, to love people. God, you know, you know how weak we are. You know how fickle-minded we are at times and our hearts shift back and forth. God, remind us that it is in the gospel that we have this brother and sisterhood, that we are one family. Make your church one, God, we pray. Lord, keep us from just looking around, looking for people like us, looking for someone that's similar to, more than that, that we would understand. What is seen is the outside doesn't represent what's on the inside. That we would be real in this way. So we, I lift up my dear sisters and brothers, our church to you. Help us to be like that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.